Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Hello, friends. I want to kick today off with a video, but of course, for those of you who are podcasting, that means you're just going to hear the audio. Uh, This is a Bob Newhart video. It's been around for a while, so you may have seen it. Just a quick disclaimer. This video does have some sensitive material around eating disorders. So I'll just say up front, I am in no way endorsing this video, but it offers a helpful starting place for our conversation today. Uh, Dr. Switzer? Uh, yes, C- come in. I'm just, just washing my hands. Uh, I'm Catherine Bigman. Janet Carlisle referred me. Oh, yes. Uh, still being uh, buried alive in a box. Yes. Yes, that's me. <laughs> Should I lay down? Oh, no, no, no. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Just, just have a seat. And, uh, and let, let me uh, tell you a, a bit about our, our billing. I, um, I charge $5 for the, for the first five minutes. And, and then absolutely nothing after that. How, how, how does that sound? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can I can almost guarantee you that that our session won't last the full uh, the full five minutes. Now, um, <laughs> we don't do any insurance billing, so you would either have to pay in in cash or by check. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And uh, and I I don't make change. All right. <laughs> and go. <clears throat> go. Well, tell what? me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm... Uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them into your life. Shall I uh, write them down? Well, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. We find most people can uh, can remember them. (laughs) Okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're there. Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, 
IT. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. Yes. Then stop it. I, I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, no, childhood. No, no, no. We, we, we don't go there. Just, just stop. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good go. Well, it's only been... It's only been three minutes, so that will be um, uh, three dollars. Well, I, I only have a five, so... Well, I, I, don't, I don't make change. Then I, I guess I'll take the full five minutes. Fine. All right. Well, what other uh, problems would you, would you like to address? <clears throat> uh, I'm bulimic. I stick my fingers down my throat. Stop it! Not of some kind? Don't, don't do that. But I, I'm compelled to. My mom used to call me No, fatty. no, no. No, we, we don't go there. But I've been having this dream. No, we don't go there either. But my horoscope did say... We definitely don't go there. Just, <laughs> just stop it. What, what, what else? Well, I have self-destructive relationships with men. Stop it! <laughs> you, you want to be with a man, don't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yes. Well, then stop it. <laughs> don't be such a big baby. I wash my hands a lot. That's all right. It is? I, I wash my hands all the time. There's a lot of germs out there. Yeah, don't, don't, uh, don't worry about that one. I'm afraid to drive. Well, stop it! How, how are you going to get around? Get in the car and drive, you, you kook! Stop it! You stop it! You stop it! What's, what's the problem, Kathy? I, I don't like this. I don't like this therapy at all. You're just telling me to stop it. And and you and you don't you don't like that? No, I don't. So you think we're we're moving too fast, is that it? Yes. Yes, I do. All right, then let me uh, let me uh, give you 10 words that I I think will uh, clear everything up for you. Uh, you want you want to get a pad and a pencil for this one? All right. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right, here are the 10 words. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box! All right. Today we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit, the final fruit, self-control. It's the very last fruit in the list. I was reflecting this past week on how many of the hundreds and even thousands of sermons that I've listened to over the years dealing with self-control have sounded far too much like the video that you just listened to. 
those kinds of sermons speak to the worst in people. They don't speak to the best in people. A bunch of destructive behaviors and thoughts and feelings are named in those sermons. Things that are troublesome and problematic in people's lives. Things that people struggle to not do. Things that they feel shame about. And then an authority, the preacher in this case, says to everyone, Stop it! The the two magic words, of course, in the sermon are self-control. But it's basically... Stop it. It's don't do all those bad things as if that's all there is to it. Sometimes the preacher even yells it like Bob Newhart. The gospel of stop it tells us that the answer is try harder. And so it produces try harder sermons and behavior modification sermons and grit your teeth and muscle through your spirituality types of sermons And just like the woman in the video, people don't like it. They leave feeling bad about themselves. The reason that they're there at all is because they're hungry. They're seeking. They're searching. But this message of stop it, that doesn't really solve everything. Sometimes, like the video, self-control sermons leverage eternal threats. It's stop it or I'll bury bury you alive in a box. Now, on the one hand, it's a, a funny little video. I get that. But I don't think that the woman is going to now go home and have all of her problems magically go away because of those two little words. Why is it that with so many stop it sermons, we still live in a world with so much addiction and so many struggles with impulse control and people struggling to manage their emotions? Why do we still live in a world where right and left, people find themselves doing things that they really didn't want to do and failing to do the things that they actually wanted to do? Are the stop it sermons not working? It isn't that hard to figure out that stop it is just too simplistic. Now, I I love it. I'll admit, I love it when stop it does work. And I wish that it worked all the time. But in many cases, there's far more going on. And so stop it only produces short-term gains. And sometimes stop it is alienating to people. They end up even further entrenched in the things that that were already causing them so many problems. A couple of studies on self-control. So one study, it comes out of Germany. Uh, It tracked 205 people. It was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Another study out of Canada from McGill University, tracked 159 people. It was published in the Journal of Social Psychology and Social Science. So people were given these devices that would randomly buzz throughout the day and ask them questions about their desires, their temptations, and the self-control that they were experiencing right at that moment. 
So it wasn't just tell like report back to us at the end of the day, how'd you do with self-control? It was, uh, we're going to catch you right in the middle of life and ask you right now about what are your desires and how are you handling that? So guess what these studies found? The people who reported that they were good at resisting temptation and that they were good at self-control were also the people who were experiencing far fewer temptations. So they claimed to be good at self-control, but the study revealed that actually they weren't exercising very much self-control at all. The, the people who were experiencing high levels of temptation and were putting lots of effort into their self-control were also the people who reported feeling more depleted. Trying hard was making them really exhausted. So the study sure makes the meaning of the Lord's Prayer sound a little different. Lead us not into temptation. Can you see what this creates? On the one hand, you end up with a bunch of people who think they're really good at self-control, but in reality, they don't experience temptations in the same frequency or intensity. They honestly do not understand why other people can't just get it together. They, in their mind, they're like, how hard can it be? Like, why do you keep doing that thing? Stop it. And so they end up shaming the people who struggle. And on the other hand, you have a bunch of people who are exerting loads of effort and they're exhausted, trying so hard not to do the thing that they don't want to do. And meanwhile, they're feeling really bad about themselves because those other people make it look so easy to have self-control. None of us chooses the things that could enslave us. The emotions, the cravings, the impulses, the desires that could drag us down dark paths in life, we don't choose those things. Somehow they are a combination of biology and genetics and societal and economic structures, a culture of self-gratification, family systems. And for Christians, we would add the way that the principalities and powers, the forces of evil, are interacting with all of this. And so people find themselves smelling the cookies that they tried to hide from themselves and eating the whole batch in one sitting or mindlessly scrolling their phone, Instagram, Facebook reels, games, news, weather, clickbait. They're basically Ryan from the office. I, I, I can't not have my phone. They can't stay away from the coffee or the wine or the sugar or the chocolate or the beer. They, they end up just mindlessly snacking. Passions and sex drives can run high and take people in many directions. For some, it's shopping, buying something new, collecting things, impulse buying. For others, it's nervous habits like biting their nails, picking at their skin, negativity, irritability. Some people work all hours of the day and night, whether it's because of ego or people-pleasing. For some, it's substance abuse and addictions, opioids, 
cigarettes, THC, vaping. Some people have to have the TV on. It's for no reason. It just has to be on. And so people find themselves struggling to manage their emotions, boiling over, falling into depressions, filled with anxiety, and all of it is nothing new. Scripture records the breakdown of all creation happening around a breakdown in self-control. Eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. And I go, well, I got it. I got to eat that. We've struggled with self-control since the beginning of time. All around the planet, people are struggling with competing and incompatible desires and trying to soothe themselves and make themselves feel better in the best way that they know how, something to help them zone out and numb them and avoid the feelings and cope, but then feeling awful about themselves later. Richard Swartz, he's the developer of internal family systems theory. He paints a helpful picture of what goes on inside our head. He says, none of us have just one voice speaking in our head. We have many voices. So a part of us is still that little vulnerable kid. And a part of us is grown up and mature and a manager. And a part of us just wants it all to be good. And so the way it works, something goes wrong in your life. And so your inner critic starts attacking you, tearing you down. It's all your fault. You're not enough or you're too much. And you feel alone. You feel like a vulnerable little kid. You feel worthless. And so along comes a voice that wants to make it all better and silence that inner critic. And it tells you that you'll feel better if you eat a bunch of cookies or if you compulsively buy a bunch of stuff or if you lose yourself for hours scrolling your phone or fill in the blank with the thing you struggle with. So you make unhealthy decisions and Follow your impulses and addictions and try to soothe yourself and help yourself feel better. But this brings your inner critic back to the surface. You're so worthless. You're a total slave to this behavior. What's wrong with you? And now you feel shame. And that inner critic just keeps beating you up. Until the soothing voice just can't take it anymore. says, here, here, let's help you feel better. Here. Have a cookie. And around and around we go. What Richard Schwartz points out is what he calls blending. And blending is when we identify one part of ourself as our entire self, our complete self. It's when we identify one part of ourself as our entire self. So see if you can hear the difference between these statements. So uh, I'll give you an example of three different ways that you could phrase a temptation. You could say, man, I just, I, I just got to have a tub of ice cream. I have to. Uh, or, man, I, I just want to have a one-night stand. Or I want to scream. I want to throw a tantrum. You could say it that way. But there's a different way to say it. See if you can hear the difference. Man, a part of me feels like 
I just got to have a tub of ice cream. And a part of me wants to just go have a one night stand. And part of me wants to scream and throw a tantrum. Can you see how identifying a part of you as all of you could be called blending? Schwartz says that the way forward lies in learning to notice our multiple selves. And rather than trying to resist that part of you that wants to scream and throw a tantrum or eat all the cookies or whatever, to become curious. Recognize that as only a part of you, not all of you. But get curious. Get to know that part. Why? Why does that part of you think that that would help? And what are the memories and the experiences attached to that part of you? And how do you feel towards that part of you? And once we can be honest about our parts, then we can be free from blending. Rather than being controlled by that one part, we can begin making decisions out of our many parts, out of our complete self. If you go way back, way, way back in history, the ancient world talked a lot about self-control. And they talked a lot about lack of self-control. And guess what the word that the ancient world used was to describe a lack of self-control? Well, it was the same word used to describe a bad mixture. Aristotle made it popular. And can you hear how that sounds similar? Aristotle calls it a bad mixture. A lack of self-control is a bad mixture. And you hear what Richard Schwartz is calling it. He says it's blending. Bad mixture. Blending. It's allowing a single part of you to call the shots for all of you, for your complete self. Plato says, a person's noble and less noble aspects are often at war with each other about which will rule a person's life. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The Apostle Paul writes about this same experience in Romans 7 and 8 and Galatians 5. He says, I don't understand what I do. He says, what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. But the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Who's going to rescue me from this body that's subject to death? He goes on in Galatians, he says, The flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what's contrary to the flesh. He says the same thing in Romans 8. He says, Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. So can you hear the way that the Apostle Paul is working to articulate his various parts there. Thomas Merton calls this the true self and the false self. Your true self is your truest nature. It's the truest thing about you. And the truest thing about you, no matter who you are, is that you are good. That's the first thing that scripture tells us about humanity. It's the first thing God says. You are good. It's 
when you are being who you truly are, who you were truly created to be as a reflection of the image of God. It's when you are embodying love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, your true self. Now, your false self is what we could call your flesh, sin, your shadow side. It's that part of you that isn't at your core. It's not at your essence, but it's clinging on, and it, it needs to be shed like an old dead snakeskin trying to hang on. It's who you become apart from God's love, controlling, demanding, anxious, afraid, violent. We can fight such brutal battles with our temptations, and often we end up on the losing side. What difference might it make if you started phrasing your thoughts and your cravings and your impulses in your own mind as part of me? Part of me really wants to just mindlessly snack all night long. I love the way that comfort food makes me feel. So that's a part of me. But another part of me really values my health and fitness and likes to feel like I'm being a good steward of the body I've been given so that I can be God's co-worker. And once you've named all of your parts and you've listened to them, what would happen if you then became curious about what's underneath those parts? In what way are your parts connected to younger versions of yourself? In what way are your parts connected to past wounds? In what way are your parts connected to how other people see you? In what way are your parts connected to what's at your core, the deepest desires of your heart? And what does it mean in this situation that you're living in to be your complete self? Not just one part of yourself, but your complete self. Might a discipline like this, where you, you intentionally recognize this is part of me. Might that discipline help you to start realizing that the noisiest parts of you may not accurately reflect the full and complete truth about you? And how might you come to appreciate your parts and also recognize the parts of you that need healing and the transformation of Christ? You remember what fruit is, the fruit of the Spirit. Every farmer knows that fruit is simply a natural product of what a tree already is. Fruit is a picture of people who are rooted in the truth of who they are in Christ. It's, I am in God, and God is in me, and I am created in the image of God. So I'm not trying to fill up a whole bunch of inadequacies. I'm simply trying to be who I am because fruit is not about doing. It's about being. Being comes before doing. So when I love, I'm being who I am. And when I am joyful, I am being who I am. And when I seek peace and the well-being of others, I'm being who I am. And when I'm long-suffering, 
I'm being who I am. And when I'm kind, I'm being who I am. And when I'm good, I'm being who I am. And when I'm faithful, I'm being who I am. When I'm gentle, I'm being who I am. And finally, when I'm being who I truly am, I will find spirit-empowered self-control. What if, instead of trying to muscle your way through self-control alone, what if God intends for self-control to become a byproduct of an outward-directed life that's focused on God and neighbor, a life shared with one another, what if self-control is meant to simply be a byproduct of the other eight fruit? Like, if you are being who you are, with the other eight fruit, self-control is like a gimme. It, it just happens. None of these fruit are individual. They are communal. They are the visible shape of the life of Christ in us. What if self-control really is spirit-enabled, spirit-empowered living that happens when we reorient our life towards a larger goal that's not focused on, don't do the bad things, stop it. No, not focused there, but is focused on being who we are, living in community with one another, God in you, and you in God. Love you, friends. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, Hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.